0: Holy God, thank you so much for the ladies that are here today. Lord, we pray for our number who are not with us, and for those who may be facing illness or a rough drive getting here or a casserole that won't cook. Whatever it is, Lord, we, um, we pray for our ladies and uh, um, ask that you give us a good time today hearing your word. Let your word go forth. Um, let us open our ears, open our hearts to hear what you have to say to each of us. Today, amen. All right, let's talk about friendship today, shall we? Yay! This is Jonathan and David, one artist interpretation. Man, there are a lot of artist interpretations out there, and I just I had a hard time choosing. Um, But I kind of like this one because it looks like a couple of guys who are waiting for Bible study to start now and just happen to have worn their (laughs) ancient Israeli garb. I kind of like this one, too. It's very dramatic. I think there's a, a, a real theme in here that is sort of a militaristic kind of love that Jonathan David have for each other. We'll talk about that. But I wanted to start with this quote from Proverbs, because I just feel like it frames the relationship of Jonathan and David so well. "A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity." That's a good fit for where we are right now. Now, I am not a great friend if you're facing adversity. In, in an emergency, yeah, I'll show up. I bring meals to people. But no, I guess I am a good friend in tough times. But in everyday life, I'm not a very good friend. Um, I have some very good friends. Some of them are sitting in this room. And they can attest that I don't remember birthdays. I don't um, check in with people. Even if I know they're going through something, I might pray for them. But I rarely will send a text and say, how did that go? I'm just not a great friend in that way. Um, But I do love my friends. And I'm grateful for my friends who do those good friend things. Very grateful for them. I feel so special when somebody does it for me, but I just don't clue in. I think there's a little piece of Jonathan and David that's like that. Jonathan's the friend who says the how are you text. And David's the one who <laughs> says, hey, glad to see you, when he sees you, but he's not <laughs> when he necessarily. That's my perception. Okay, um, in, in Jonathan, we get a biblical example of what a great friendship looks like. Jonathan doesn't just like David enough to hang out with him a lot. His soul is knit to his friend. Um, this comes in, in a big way. Comes into play in a big way in today's reading. David has been running from Saul, Jonathan's dad. Most recently, he's fled from Naioth and returned to Gibeah because Saul is headed for Naioth. David meets up with Saul again in Gibeah, and they end up doing a little plotting. Not so much against Saul, but in order to save David's life. Jonathan doesn't want to think ill of his father. In verse two. Um, Which is why he says, hey, my dad tells me everything. And he hasn't said anything about him wanting to kill you. Um, Which is a reasonable way to think. You want to assume that your dad doesn't want to kill anybody, right? I mean, I do. (laughs) Of course, my dad wasn't a military leader. He likes to say he carried a clarinet in the Korean War. Anyway. So David makes a vow, again, though it's not clear if we know what the first vow was, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. So he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. That's what David is swearing for Jonathan. So that he understands, No, really, your dad hates me. He wants me dead. That gets Jonathan's attention. Now imagine for a moment what this must have been like for Jonathan. We know that Saul is a dangerous man, that he's losing a little bit because he knows that he's not gonna get to be king. Um, he knows that David is somehow special in God's eyes. Um, but he's also a great man. He was chosen by all the people of Israel um, for his many good qualities to be their king, right? Tall, dark, and handsome, yes, that's mostly what we get. But he was also a great military leader. He leads his nation, and he's Jonathan's dad. Um, Not only is he king and father, but he's brought his heir to his side to be his privy council, right? Jonathan says, he was anointed, Satan. Nothing great or small happens without him disclosing it to me. So they've got a close father-son relationship. And dad's already brought him into the family business. For a king heir father-son relationship this one sounds pretty great if you've read very much history of monarchs at least in england and france it can get pretty dicey so that's one part of jonathan's heart bound to his family and his father but here's this other part of his heart bound to david in a deep bond of friendship jonathan is a pure-hearted kind of guy when we learned chapter 18 of his friendship with david we heard twice, that Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. And now his beloved father and king wants David dead. Again, right? This is the second time this has happened. And has kept this thought from Jonathan, which is new. How must he feel right here? You know, can you imagine being in this kind of conflict? I can't. Um, but I am grateful for the peaceable family that I've lived in. But Jonathan loves David, and he loves justice, right? That's a little minor part that we don't see as much, but if you look at Jonathan's life, he loves justice. He loves, he thirsts for righteousness. Saul's desire to kill David is primarily from jealousy, so it's not too hard to understand why it is that Jonathan comes down decisively on David's side and fairly quickly. I just wanted to sit for a moment with that choice that Jonathan's faced with here, father versus friend. King versus future king. It's a lot. But Jonathan's story here parallels Jesus' choices, which we'll come to later. But when we do, keep in mind how hard this decision must have been for Jonathan. Now, I don't know what, I didn't save the picture right, so I don't have it here. Have any of you seen Henry V, the Shakespeare play? The movie or the play? Yeah, probably if you've seen it, Kenneth Branagh is in your mind right now, right? Where he's, he does this thing with his jaw and place plays He's just, Christina calls him a scenery chewer. Is that what you call him? Yeah. Because he's just, he's so effusive in character. I just watched the, the uh, St. Christmas Day speech again, last week as I was writing this. I thought I might show a video clip of it and I just couldn't stand it. <laughs> I showed it to my students when I was teaching that movie because it is more accessible because he works so hard to physically dramatize the words he's saying, but man, compare that to if any of you saw the Laurence Olivier version years ago, or um, more recently Tom Hiddleston, the guy that plays Loki in the Thor movies, did one for Masterpiece Theatre, it's so good. It's just good. I didn't mean that as an he's hot. <laughs> Which I know there's a certain subset of the hipster crowd that thinks he is, but I'm old enough to be his mother. Anyway. No. Oh, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not, but I don't know. <laughs> he's a good actor, and that's good. So it's pretty great. Anyway, that vibe, the vibe of that St. Christmas Day speech really comes to mind for me as I read this whole conversation and David in chapter 20 and 21. It's really theatrical, this chapter, isn't it? I actually thought about having one of the other leaders come up and read the scene with me, but it didn't. Um, So that play, that scene from Henry V comes to mind for me, the Band of Brothers story. And then my husband said it actually reminds him of the World War II documentary called Band of Brothers from the Stephen Ambrose book, which some of you might have read also, which really goes into depth about the relationship of the military there. And then my oldest son, most of you know Garrett, a blonde-haired boy, he was saying that um, he and Ted saw this movie, now I can't think of what the name of it is, but it's about Chris Kyle, who was a sharpshooter. Yeah. American soldier? American sniper. Thank you. Thank you. Think of it. And he said that Chris Kyle's wife, in an interview he saw, talked about how um, when he returned, she was absolutely, clearly second fiddle to the men of his unit. That his love for the men of his unit was so much stronger than his love for her. And she knew that he loved her. But it was a different kind of love and that's what we're talking about here um, and then i've got like a whole page and a half about the homoerotic idea that you see because i missed the beginning of christina's speech when she already covered it so i'm just going to cut that out you guys will get a couple of extra minutes um, but basically i agree with christina i think if you're reading it as history there's um, not a lot of way to see it as homoerotic although Our cultural filters, it's almost hard not to read it that way when you first look at it, I think. It's kind of startling, but it's how it is. Anyway, I can talk about that more with you individually if you want. But there are two main things I want to talk about today. The first is I want to talk about how Jonathan and David's relationship is analogous to Jesus' relationship with us, the church. And then I want to talk about the feeling of pursuit that David is going through at this time and how his situation can relate to our lives today. <clears throat> I recommend it in the questions that you look at Philippians 2 for a list of similarities between Jesus and Jonathan because, um, I do have a slide, yay. Uh, because Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but empties himself by taking the form of a servant. In the same way, Jonathan empties himself of the role of heir, suborning himself to David, the youngest son of a shepherd. So we are like that lowly shepherd, right? David is fairly worthless in his culture's eyes. He's the youngest son of a whole lot of sons, who are older, handsomer, more accomplished. All he can do is show sheep around far as we know. And we are like him in comparison to God, right? We may be pretty great, but we're not God. Um, Jesus is that heir who trades his robe of glory. He gives it to us of his deep desire to show us how loved we are and how much we can love him. Also in this story, we get the first two verses of Philippians 2. Look at that there? Yes, good job I did it. Which describes so well what a holy friendship looks like. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and comfort from love, and participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Describes John and David pretty well, right? I want to say, too, being of one mind, being of the same mind, doesn't necessarily mean that you agree on minor things, it means that you agree on major things, like the nature of God, that we are loved by God, that Jesus died for our sins, that's being of one mind. Being on the same page politically doesn't make you of one mind being committed to discussing politics in a way that honors both of you and makes it so that both of you are heard, that's being of one mind. It's a difference, right? You don't have to agree, but you have to love and respect one another in your disagreements. I think that's what Jesus means, but not Jesus, this is Paul. In chapter 18, Jonathan symbolically gave up his claim to the kingdom by placing his robe and sword on David as he made a covenant with David. The robe represents the right to rule, and the sword represents the responsibility of the sovereign to protect. And Jonathan gave both of these things away, his greatest um, privilege and his greatest honor he gives to David. Then, here in chapter 20, Jonathan helps David escape King Saul's unrighteous wrath. At the end of chapter 20, Saul found out that John had made a covenant with Dave, his sworn enemy, and he says, You are a son of a perverse, rebellious woman. <laughs> yeah, it's Mom's fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always Mom's fault. Exactly. Yep, not my fault. Blame that woman. Wow, do you think she was in the room? <laughs> Hope for Saul's sake she wasn't, he's got it rough enough. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Saul doesn't care about David anymore, whom he knows is supposed to be the next king, right? Saul is thinking about primogeniture, and expanding his kingdom through his progeny and his son. The patriarchy must be passed down from father to son, not to some shepherd kid, no matter how well he plays the lute. <coughs> Liar, sorry. Saul wants Jesse to fight for his throne, not willingly gift it to God's chosen son. I liked this description I found from Greg Harris. Just as souls everywhere continue to think, Jonathan's dad had come to believe that you have to fight, dig, and grab for what is yours. The utter folly of freely and willingly handing over what you possess to another always creates this nauseating repulsion in the stomach of any soul. Because such a release is so alien to the souls of this world. Fool, look what you have. Look what you could have. The entire world lies before you, ready to be enjoyed to its fullest. Don't be a fool. Don't humble yourself before one who, will, who some say will one day rule over you. A shepherd from Bethlehem, king of Israel? That's crazy. That's what Saul's thinking. But Jonathan did not reason as his hard-hearted father had. He did, I'll you know, make that Jonathan, accepted this as God's ordained decree. Acceptance is stronger than simply believing, right? Jonathan knew that David would be king over Israel, knew it in his heart. He also knew by faith that whatever he gave up, he would receive back in manifold blessings from his beloved friend, but from the holy blessing that comes from obedience to God's desires. Jonathan's total acceptance of God's decree repeatedly shows in his actions. Instead of bringing about David's death, and after multiple attempts at convincing his father, the king, that David was not a true enemy, even to Jonathan's own peril future wise, Jonathan went to bring the heartbreaking news to the exiled David that all was not well. It was not safe for David to return to King Saul's court. Yet, even in the midst of his own grief at what would amount to the loss of an ongoing fellowship with his beloved friend because of the separation with David having run, Even now, he brought the news to David. Um, And I'm stealing a little bit from chapter 23 here, Kristen, sorry. Um, He bears witness that he looked out for his heart-friend brother. Jonathan Saul's son visits David at Horesh and encourages him in God. He says, don't despair. My dad can't lay a hand on you. You'll be Israel's king, and I'll be right at your side to help. And my father knows it. Then the two of them made another covenant before God. David stayed at Horesh and Jonathan went home. Both friends departed deeply saddened that day. Neither of them rejoiced at being separated. Neither of them rejoiced at Saul's impending overthrow. Just as Jonathan and David's God-honored plan to put David on the throne of Israel grew out of the covenant created from love, so we have had our status eternally changed because God saw fit to enter into a covenant relationship with us. Ephesians 2, 12, 13... Oh, I didn't put it up here. I knew I'd forgotten one. So, this is Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. It says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, no longer separated, no longer excluded, no longer strangers to the covenant of promise to those who are in Christ. However, as good as any man-made covenant can be, such as the one Jonathan David had, the covenants of God are always infinitely better because of our own sinful frailties and because of his own perfection. In fact, Hebrews 7 talks about, again, Melchizedek, the priesthood. Um, We learn Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant for those who love him and have entered into covenant relationship with him. God not only gives us, his beloved, a better covenant with a better guarantee of Christ Jesus, but he also gives us rich promises of his future and our place in that future. In the last promise given to the overcomers in revelations 2 and 3 jesus himself promises he who overcomes see if you hear this in what we read from this verse he who overcomes i will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as i also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne jesus makes this promise to us keeping grace upon grace. His victory and his reward he freely shares with we who love him. I mention this to bring it full circle because you see it, don't you? Jonathan will sit with David on his throne. Jesus invites us to sit with him on his throne, just as he sat down with his father on his throne, just as Jonathan sat with Saul on his throne. I know you will be king over Israel, Jonathan says, and I will be next to you. For Jonathan, the cost of his covenant with David is very high. He gives up his inheritance. He gives up fame and glory and riches and women and power and, you know, the whole list of things that come to kings. But we still know Jonathan's name today, right? That's those blessings, those manifold blessings that God keeps on those who obey. One of the main things you give up if you give up the throne is being famous. We love the idea of being famous, don't we? Yeah, I know, some of us don't. But (laughs) as a culture, everybody wants their 15 minutes. Um, And Jonathan gives his up. Instead, he gets to be famous, at least as far as 2018. Uh, but Jesus gave all that up as well in his covenant with us. We remember whenever we take communion, that the Lord, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's the covenant in a nutshell, right? God reaching out to us through great suffering on his part so that we can know how loved we are. I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon um, about Jonathan's love for David and how it relates to Jesus. He says, as he was writing his sermon, when I was thinking on this subject, I said to myself, I shall see many tonight, for me, I would say, I will see many this morning, who are lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I shall be face to face with those who love him as they love their own souls i believe that is my happiness now well then beloved friends let us who love christ keep him always in memory if you can speak of his name do not be silent if you can make melody in honor of jesus in a great congregation take down the minstrel's harp and lay your fingers among the strings and bring out the sweetest music to his name that thousands may hear but if you have a feebler instrument, still sing and play and let those who love you know that you love your Lord best of all. Or if your tongue fails you, use your pen to let men know who Jesus is. Say it with the psalmist. My heart is inditing a good manner. I speak of the things which have made touching the king. That's what our response to his great love should be to tell it out through our word, through our song, through our writing, and through our deed. That's what Spurgeon called us to so long ago. I don't know if you guys have read Charles Spurgeon. So fun. Convicting, but fun. All right, so that's the Jesus and Jonathan relationship for us. I think it's super cool. Now, let's look at the end of chapter 20. There's this odd little bit where Jonathan lets David know about Saul's continued plan to kill David by having a small boy fetch arrows that he shoots into a field where David is hiding. Um, if he tells the boy to search for the arrows closer between them, it means David is safe to come back. If he tells the boy that the arrows have gone beyond him and to look further, then that means David can't come back. For a while, this was dumb to me, because I was like, why this secret communication regarding Saul's anger, immediately followed by David coming out and hugging him and, right? It's like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Why the little secretiveness? Um, But this is what became obvious to me. David, in this moment, and in probably most moments, is not actually alone. He's got his band of brothers. In the very next chapter... He's separated from them for a while, but it's very likely that David had some men with him at this time. They may not have been right with him, hiding behind the same rock he was, but they were somewhere nearby. And this scene gives Jonathan plausible deniability, right? He is not coming and saying, David, run. My dad's going to kill you. There's some tearful parting there that the troops may have had to figure out, but why? So, for me, that helped. Um, So let's look at chapter 21. David does a lot of running around here, a lot of time in the wilderness, and he's going to do even more in next week's chapters. He and Jonathan have said their tearful goodbye at the end of chapter 20. And now David's on the run. And a couple of really interesting things happen here. David is so human. Isn't he? We've studied him before, and we always find out how human David is. Um, he outright lies in this chapter, in 21. He's hungry, as are his men, so he tells the priest of Nob that he's on the king's secret business. Now I guess, since he's God's appointed and eventually will be king, that it's sort of... Yeah, no, it's a lie. <laughs> he gets the priest to share the bread of the presence, which is reserved for priests and must be replaced whenever it's eaten. Um, He gets the priest to give it to him and his men. Um, I even wonder, so the things that I read suggested that the reason that um, there's that bit about them having kept themselves clean from women shows that they were specifically on a military expedition, um, that when they were going out to fight in order to keep themselves ritually pure, they didn't spend time with women in any of the villages where they were. But then since he's already lied about why they're there, I'm wondering, is he really making, I don't know, David got me questioning everything. David's deceitful here, yes, and there's one more. Um, His deceits cost the priests of Nod their lives. Then he claims that he left too quickly on his errand, this is his other lie, Um, I left down too quickly on my errand of the king to have time to grab my armaments. Do you have a sword lying around? Well, they happen to have Goliath's sword. I bet David knew that. Might even be why he took the road to Nob. Um, and David is happy to is it, isn't he? Next he heads to Gath, where they recognize him as the most famous warrior. David, even calling him king. Um, so scholars are mixed on why David is called king here. It is the first time he's called king outright, is in chapter 21. And we don't know this yet. Anybody but David and Jonathan and Saul, if he's in his right mind. Um, but Achish is referred to as the king of Gath also. But Gath is just a city under Philistine control. He's a Philistine leader, but not really king. So, more likely that the term, the Philistine term for leader, maybe chief or Pharaoh or something like that, is being translated king in this chapter but it doesn't mean king in the same way that we mean king as Saul is king. Okay, ultimate ruler of the people. However they mean it, they're Philistine, which means they're not going to be super happy to meet David, right? They're probably mocking him when they call him king. David is quick to realize this, though, and immediately begins behaving as if he were a lunatic, scratching at the doors and being nuts. These verses paint David as sort of wily, right? Um, But we can see by looking at Psalm 34, which he wrote when he changed his behavior so that the king would drive him out and he went away, um, that David was a very sad fellow indeed right here. Quick note, scholars agree that while the Philistine ruler Gath is called Achish and the the king in Psalm 34 is Abimelech, all scholars agree that it's the same guy just a different spelling you know there are so many small language groups um things get translated into hebrew at different times by different people yeah i want to finish today reading psalm 34 to you david has had to run from his mentor who now wants to kill him right imagine that have you had mentors in your life that matter to you i mean we talked about how hard it would be for david for jonathan to oppose his father who would care for him. Originally, Saul brought David in, right? Appreciated his military leadership, appreciated his music, kind of mentored him, and now he wants to kill him. He's had to separate from his dear, constant brother, friend, Jonathan, and he's scrambled to get enough food for himself and his men. Things are bad, and we would leave him there. But we have Psalm 34, which doesn't end up as hopeless as David might look right now. And You'll find it just left of center in your Bible, and follow along if you've got your Bible. Or you can just soak in the reading of this word for you today. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read it, and then we'll be done. Father in heaven, open this psalm for us today in our hearing it read aloud. Show us which verses are meant for us individually, and which will deepen our understanding of you. Connect us more deeply with David and how he continued to hope in you and praise you even in very dark times. Go with us into the week, whatever difficulties we may be facing, knowing that you are on our side. Amen. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. My praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Learn your own lesson, David. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But this is my other picture, (laughs) darling, Think about it.